Welcome to the Tools, Talents, and Techniques podcast. And today, I'm joined by an impressive young man, Mr. Jamal Russell Black. Now, Jamal's career has been dedicated to working on some of the world's most critical topics. He's been a researcher and a consultant, and he's focused on evaluating systemic inequities within our economic system and developing decarbonization roadmaps. He leverages data-driven and geospatial research techniques to gain a comprehensive understanding of research questions and to provide actionable insights. He's currently embarking on his PhD, conducting research in the areas of equity, energy, and economics. His previous work includes collaborating with Fortune 100 companies on their decarbonization efforts, and he holds a master's degree uh, from University of California, San Diego, and he strongly believes that finding viable solutions to the climate crisis is a responsibility that we all share. So this is a wide-ranging conversation, and we talk a lot about Jamal and who he is and why he has decided to focus his attention on equity, energy, and how it all fits together. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mr. Jamal Russell Black. Jamal, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's my it's my absolute pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Excited to be here. There's so much that I want to cover today, and I know that you want to share, but how about we start with a little bit about yourself? Yeah, yeah. So um, my name is Jamal Russell Black, originally from California. Um, I currently I'm doing my PhD focusing on building physics and energy poverty. Um, and I'll t- probably touch on that a little bit more depth later on, but um, I've had an interesting kind of journey to get to this point where I actually wanted to focus on this specific topic. Um, immediately after doing my master's program down in San Diego, UC San Diego, I, I um, worked in like kind of as a st- statistician in the education space. Um, I really enjoyed the work, but there was something kind of missing there. Um, I then kind of swapped and decided I was going to come back to San Diego and worked more as a labor economist. And again, like it was, it was, it, it was, it was what I wanted to be doing in some ways. It was the modeling, it was the mathematics, but there was a part of it that like, I wasn't, the topic wasn't exactly right for what I wanted to be focusing on. Um, and you know, as I was kind of going through this process of trying to understand what was happening and like what I wanted to be focusing on in my professionally, um, I'm originally from Northern California. We got hit with these wildfires. And this is back in 2017. And I decided like at that point, okay, like I'm going to push my chips in and focus on climate. I don't know in what way, but I know that that's the direction I want to be going. So I stayed working as a a labor economist for a little bit longer. um, But then ultimately in 2020, I finally made the transition over after spending a few years kind of, um, you know, outside of academia, trying to like educate myself on what, what it means to be sustainable decarbonization, all that kind of stuff. And, um, in 2020, um, during the pandemic, I actually took that as an opportunity to change my career path again uh, for the third time. And this time I swapped and went into the consulting space. Um, I spent the next few years uh, working with kind of tech companies, Fortune 100 tech companies, helping set their um, kind of net zero targets, coming up with implementation roadmaps to help them meet those targets, and then actually trying to deliver on those um those implementation pathways. So coming up with projects and programs, that would actually help them meet their scope one, scope two, scope three emissions um, reductions. And so um, from there, more recently, I've been working again on that kind of same space, but from the San Diego's perspective. So helping more municipalities, um, uh, water utilities, um, the county government, everything based here in San Diego to again, like address kind of these um climate change related uh, issues that are coming up in their, in their, you know, respective entities. And um, yeah, then simultaneously, like I said, doing the PhD um, um, and, and building physics and energy poverty. There, one of the reasons that I thought it was so important to have you on, have these conversations and you just touched on many of them, but I feel that you are uniquely situated to talk about a lot of these from a lot of different angles from the, you mentioned the, the academic standpoint, 
your your lived experience, which we'll we'll go into depth with, but all the things and finding innovative solutions and and finding ways and using different models and how it impacts uh, you know the micro and the macro and how it all ties together. And having conversations with you, it really is inspiring to to know that there's a passion behind the process and how it all ties together. So can can you let's go back and just start with how this all came into your frame of reference? How did you get involved and interested in this in the first place? Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that kind of starts with even from a younger age and like there's elements um, you know, I, like there's elements of like my own race, racial makeup, and there's elements of kind of growing up as in, within a low income family. And then there's kind of, um, like my family historical things. And I think some of this will be news to you. So um, I'm glad to like share with you kind of live as I, as I share with everybody else. So, um, you know, I, I come from, uh, my, my, my mom's white, my dad's black. And, uh, you know, I come from a, being in Northern California, Sonoma County specifically growing up, I didn't really feel like I fit in into any specific kind of place within my peers. And so that was from the time I was like five, six. Like I, it kind of was the first time my racial makeup kind of came into my the, my, my mind. And, and with that, I kind of understood that I was different. I couldn't really say why I was different. I felt different. Um, some of it was like given identity, meaning that like people kind of assigned me and put me into or tried to put me into a box. And then other, other parts of it were like my own kind of, uh, interpretation of what my identity truly was. And so I've always kind of struggled with that even into like now into my thirties where I, I still don't exactly figure out exactly where I place. However, because I was asking myself these kind of questions from a young age, I decided always like, okay, well, what is it, what is it that you actually want to be doing? And originally I thought that was like athletics and sports. And I think a lot of that is related to like, as a black man, when I was like in the two thousands, there weren't, you know, this is pre Obama, right? So like they're, they're in the early two thousands. So there weren't a lot of like role models for me to be like looking to, um, in the way that I, um, would have seen for like other professions, right? Like even like a lawyer or a doctor or anything like you very rarely, even academics or, or teachers, right? Like I, I'm now in my thirties, I still haven't had a black teacher. And so like, I think all those experiences shaped me um, and decided when I was younger, I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be an athlete. And then when that like inevitably failed because, you know, I'm, I'm five, seven and like, you know, 180 pounds, like I'm not built for an athlete body for that. And so when I eventually failed, like I had to pivot. And, but before I pivoted, like, what made me able to pivot so quickly and easily, I think, was like just having grown up again in a low income family, I experienced a lot of things about like, you know, like still still to this day, like I don't think that I've lived in a place for more than a year's time. Right. And I think part of that is because we grew up poor, especially when I was in, 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 in uh, a kid. Um, you know, we moved schools kind of like six, seven times before I was like 12. Um, and that's just cause we're constantly moving around. I, I found out the other day that at one point we were squatting in someone's house, which was a wake up call. I didn't realize I was that family at that when I was younger, but like you wow. find these things out and you know, that's always been like, I mean, now looking back on it, that's like, I'm like, I like, I lean into that. But at the time there was a lot of embarrassment, and a lot of shame that came along with that. Right. Like I, I didn't celebrate birthdays really. We didn't celebrate Christmases in the ways that my friends were doing it. And I would like to just quickly caveat, like growing up poor in America is also not the same as growing up poor in a different country um, and specifically like developing countries. And so like, I like just like full blanket statement, I recognize that my experience though was tough contextually within the area I was at across the rest of the world. It is, um, it was still like a life of privilege in a lot of ways, but kind of leaving mm -hmm. that to the side for a moment, like I it was hard for me growing up. And I mean, I, I, I recognize everything from like, like what being on food stamps was like to like having struggling paying our energy bills. And I think that piece of it ultimately led me to my PhD of understanding like, okay, well, how are these systems? How are these um, economic systems specifically and dynamics really impacting households on the, on the, um, at, or impacting people on the household level? And I think, you know, 
one last kind of piece before I kind of go more into that element of the, or maybe two pieces was one, um, I've always been really passionate about kind of human rights. I studied it a little bit in uh, my undergrad and has always been kind of the, one of my motivating or driving factors. So when I was focusing on education professionally or uh, labor economics, I was always looking at underserved populations. And I think a lot of that comes from both my parents. My mom still to this day has worked in that space, but my dad, um, you know, he was like associated with the Black Panthers back in the 1970s. And that was, you know, rooted within me because him in a lot of ways being um, classified by like, you know, federal laws as a kind of quote unquote terrorist meant that uh, even though he was out there trying to give like bread to people at churches um, who couldn't afford bread in the 70s, like he was classified as a terrorist, which meant that his inability to like kind of break that that label that was given to him meant that he was not going to be eligible for different economic professional career opportunities regardless of how much he um you know he he went on to get his master's degree and started on his doctorate and then it became clear that he was there's a cap there's a glass ceiling there for him because of um this 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 um kind of label that was given to him and so i think like all of that like kind of shaped me to want to say like okay well i grew up in this circumstance um it wasn't ideal by any stretch of the imagination but like what can i do and what can I learn from this? Well, I learned how to be kind of, you know, like to really follow my dreams. Because at the end of the day, like if I lose everything, I know what it's like to be poor. It's not going to be that bad. I'll go find a job. So I'm doing something else. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Um, so I'm willing to take those kind of risks professionally and pivot and transition. If I'm not happy, I'm gone. And then the other piece of it is like, you know, really, I like dedicating my life to, you know, helping folks who are kind of from similar backgrounds. And unfortunately, there is a racial component to that in which it's not just like underserved populations tend to be black and brown populations, not tend to be, they're like, they're statistically, um, there's some kind of statistical significance there in that they're identified, like they're more likely to be, um, you know, low income, uh, experience all these different versions of poverty. And, you know, for me trying to understand how these dynamics work, what causes them, how it affected me specifically um, is all things that kind of drives me and motivates me. Cause I, you know, ultimately I'd like to break those kind of cycle of poverty. It's not for myself, but for the, the people who look like me. Well, let, let's, I want to, I want to go back a little bit. Cause when you real, if you can, like when you realize that, right. Like, because my, my, it feels kind of weird saying this, but my, my, my mom used to say, um, this little parable or that, you know, there's these two, children of, of this family and you and the one child is an alcoholic uh, or you know there's adults but the one is the alcoholic and the other one's never touched a, a drink a drop of liquor and you ask the one why is he an alcoholic you say because my dad is an alcoholic and you ask the other one why have you never touched a drop of alcoholic because my dad's an alcoholic right yeah. so can you place a time in your life where maybe you realize that you know i I'm going to choose one way or another. I'm going to make a decision to, 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 to take the next step. Like, does, did, do you recall when that first became of even a thought? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I remember when I was like six wanting to uh, like, there's, there's maybe a few different moments I recall. Like when I was six, I was super excited to be a big brother. Um, don't know why, but like I had already become a big brother with my younger sister, but like this was, I was becoming a big brother to my younger brother now. And he, like that idea, I think I was just more mature, which is why I remember it. But like that, that like idea of me being kind of a role model to him really excited me. Hmm. Um, I played sports, like I said, throughout my life and, you know, for better or worse, um, you know, my body hurts every day now, but like they, they do instill kind of this idea of like leadership and teamwork and how that can help you. And like, you do have some semblance of control. And like, again, being, I'm, I'm super privileged because like my parents um, both talked to me about, you know, civil rights leaders and, and, and folks that were influential in, in this space. And then, and like, not even just within the United States, but like Nelson Mandela, Gandhi and all these other folks. And so because of that, you know, I kind of, always aspired to be, um, you know, to some level of some semblance of greatness, right. And having some kind of legacy that I could leave behind that I could be proud of. Now, I think when I was younger, that was a lot what, what drove me And today. Like I'm less concerned about having my name kind of stamped on anything. I think, um, 
I'm, I'm less nihilistic, I guess, in that mm. regard, which is probably better for my mental health, if I'm honest. But uh, the, uh, when I was younger, a lot of that was just like, I need to be remembered. I need to be remembered, right? And originally that was for sports, but then it transitioned to kind of more in the academic sense. Um, and then like, there's a few other things that happened. Like I remember, uh, you know, my, when I was, my mom brought this story up the other day, like she, uh, when I was in third grade or fourth grade, uh, probably fourth grade, I think they asked me to be like a conflict manager. So like I was one of those kids that went around and like helped stomp out conflict between other kids on the playground and stuff. Um, that was, she was super proud about that. I had completely forgotten about it, but like, that was just kind of how I was. Um, I'm always like happy to have those conversations, hard conversations, uh, which I think is something in society that we don't necessarily always want to have. Like conversations sometimes and oftentimes should be difficult, but if they're approached in a mature way, even as a little nine-year-old, like you could actually, you know, get to the crux of the issue and solve it. Um, and I think everything that this is kind of deviating, but like all of our political stuff and things like if people were just more willing to listen and have a hard conversation and actually participate in a way that was more mature, I would say that, you know, we'd be in a lot better situation kind of as a country, as a society, as a global community, et cetera. But um, I digress. Uh, yeah. Like I think the last, last piece of it was like more of a negative story where, right. I, where I was, I, I went out with some friends and like when I was growing up, I didn't tell them really in my late twenties, I, d- I didn't drink. And so I always, people always question kind of my black credentials in a lot of ways. And because of the way I speak, because I'm like, I have a, you know, uh, <laughs> propensity just to kind of lean into it a little bit, but propensity for like books and, and academics and whatnot. And so I got made fun of, right? Like people call me Carlton people, you know, and I did not like that association because I wasn't, I wasn't proud to be a quote unquote nerd. Now I think it's like a lot, a lot more acceptable within society, but at the time it just wasn't like, you had to be a big, tough athlete. Right. And so people always question like kind of my blackness, which was frustrating for me because, you know, I always question like, what does it mean to even be black? Right. And while I was going through that, I remember I had a group of friends and they invited me to kind of go and we were all kind of from the same kind of socioeconomic area. And so they were like, Hey, let's go take a ride um, up to this other community. And we're like, if you, can you just give us a ride? We're going to go through and break through, break into like, look into cars and see if they're open and take some stuff. And I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like, this sounds like a terrible idea. Like, why would I even <laughs> not like who I am? But on the other hand, like it was the same group that made me feel like I wasn't black. And if by some way I could just like lean into like, like kind of get their approval by participating in something that I didn't want to do, maybe they'll lay off me. Maybe I'll have that acceptance. And so like, it was tough. And ultimately I made a bad decision in that I went and followed them or I gave them a ride. Cause I was the only one in the group that could drive. I gave them a ride. We went up to this, this community. Uh, they ended up like going through like cars and trying to take stuff. Luckily all of them were locked. So like, that was like, please lock your cars. Cause there's stupid kids running around doing stuff as a, like a public service announcement. Um, but then one of the kids like tried to go into someone's house and that person was home. And so they run, they like run back to my car. I'm just sitting in there. They run back to my car. I like speed off. I have this old broken ass truck and I just like do a getaway. And I, I, I just like drive, park the car. Um, and like, I just sat there and I thought, this is like, this is the end of my life if I keep doing this. Like, I am terrified of going to jail. I do not want to go to jail. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to be that type of statistic. This is my chance to make sure, like, this is a wake-up call. Like, if I want to, and so, like, without going too much down, like, my train of thought, I'm getting, like, goosebumps just thinking about this, but, like, I was like, I'm done. I'm cool with all you guys. Like, I don't care what you guys think about me any longer. Like, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm. And that was kind of the point where I checked out of that group and really just kind of try to evaluate and think about what I wanted to be and who I wanted to be as a, as a, as a man, as a human, um, as, you know, as a black person, like, like all those different things, like what was important to me. And, um, you know, for me, I was able to kind of break through what I call like that, 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 that cycle of poverty, um, the gravitational pull of poverty, um, in this way in that, like, I got lucky, didn't get like my hand slapped for being accessory to some kind of B and E. And, um, I think that for me was like, again, like the time where I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go back to my books and focus on this. Yeah, that's powerful, though, that you can 
pinpoint a time like that and from all your experience and from your upbringing and from your parent and, and, you know, your essence and realizing that this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit with, with what I know, how I feel and where I want to go. So you made it, you made a, a conscious decision to, to pivot or at least yeah. to, to, to not make those type of decisions again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that was like, like definitely like a deviation from my character and I'd never really been in trouble in school. Like, I, I never like I didn't drink, didn't smoke, um, you know, when I was growing up and everything. Um, and so it was a large kind of like, you know, going off the path. And I was like, why am I doing this for people that don't really even give a shit about me? And mm. that was ultimately what like led me to this. Like I'm here for, you know, trying to psych myself up but I'm here to kind of if I really want to be great, if I really want to change the world, positively change the world, like I can't be making stupid mistakes like this. And you know, even at 16, like, like that became, you know, very clear in my mind. And so then I was able to kind of, again, focus in and um, not to say I haven't done stupid things still, but like stupid things in that level. No, like, like, like yeah. activity. No. And I'm, I'm not happy about that, but stupid other things. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to, to, from my perspective, and one of the things that, that this resonates with me is that that self-awareness and when you're saying, it, you know, it, it's not your character, but being aware of how you feel and who you are and being aware of an action or a feeling or something, a situation that is separate from that and then taking tangible steps to move forward is, uh, I mean, again, I don't know the, the textbook definition, but to me, that's that's the path of self actualization. That's uh self-awareness to self-actualization. That's, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, obviously there's a sprinkle of luck in there that like nothing happened. Like, like these people didn't actually get into anybody's car or steal anything, but like the idea, like, and, and, and yeah, I'm just, like I said, I, I I'm happy that I did have that self-actualization, that, that awareness to be like, I'm not happy. This is not, this does not make me comfortable in the slightest. I do not want to be, mm. be in a situation where I'm actually comfortable doing stuff like this or being associated with things like this. Like, um, so yeah. So I think those you, are the, the things that changed me or shaped me in some pretty profound ways. And so when you, when you went to college, when you were picking your major, you meant, you mentioned, um, you know, what you said, can you go into depth on, on your decision-making process yeah. as you, you know, going to school and, and uh, navigating? Yeah. It was tough because like, maybe I'll start quickly in high school, but like in high school, I was kind of a uh, honor student and then going into AP courses and then decided when I was 17 that I didn't want to be in AP courses. And in fact, I went the exact opposite and took the easiest route ever. And again, I think that was because I thought, you know, black people just had to either be an entertainer of some sort. So whether it be an athlete, a rapper, hip, like something like that, like that. So that was kind of one of my, and I wish I had someone to actually pull me back into line that would like give me the guidance in that time. But unfortunately I did not. And when I went on to community college first, um, you know, to continue pursuing the football career, uh, I walked to the office, the counselor looked at me, he's like, okay, so what are you doing? Uh, what do you want to do? I was like, well, honestly, I don't really know. Um, I was interested in architecture, engineering stuff when I was younger, but that's kind of, and he's like, uh, okay, well, we're just going to put you in kinesiology because that's what a lot of the football players do. And that was it. I started doing kinesiology classes. I had no idea what the subject was. And I was like, all of a sudden kind of studying. And I was like, mm, this is not right for me. And so then I swapped career tracks. I then went to like, um, kind of accounting, um, again, like more close to what I wanted to be doing, but not 100%. Um, I did then finally like swap to business. And again, at this point it was just like, I'm just going to do business just to get a degree and transfer to a four-year university and then figure everything else off from there. And then once I transferred to a four-year university, I was still kind of in this idea of like pursuing the athletic career. Um, I went to school in actually the UK, but at this point I'd already swapped like sports and was focusing on rugby, which is why I was in the UK. But um, I, uh, I decided like, I started taking like courses on international law, human rights and stuff like that. And that's where I was like, Oh my God, I love this. And then I started sitting in on seminars on economics. I was like, oh, there's a connection here. I love this. Okay, how do I, how do I, like, what is a career path in which? Is, and so I'm like 22, 23, like, in probably my third or fourth year of, of university. Well, technically, like, third or fourth year of university. 
and um, finally feeling like I was like getting to the topic that I actually wanted to be focused on. Um, but at this time, like I was also simultaneously homeless uh, in London, which was a scary thing because um, I mean, like you, you have to like, I was staying at different hostels, um, staying on friends' couches, sometimes had to sleep at the library. Um, all the while I was hanging out there, hanging with like people at my university were super well off. So like Lamborghinis and, and, and having like, you know, Rolls Royce and Bentleys and like personal drivers and the fashion show that was happening. And so like, I'm wearing the same clothes and kind of sleeping in the library and other people are like rolling up in Louis Vuitton, everything. And that was a huge like issue for me. So I didn't like enjoy my time at university, but I did come away with this idea of like, this is right at like the beginning of the refugee crisis, um, Syrian civil war and some of these other things. And there's a huge influx of folks into London and like that were forced to sleep on the street. And for me, my worst case scenario was always like, I was just going to come back to California. I can get a job, you know, blue collar job or go into the service industry, tourism or something like that. That was my worst case scenario. And to the day, that's kind of the approach I take. Um, Whereas these folks were like, some of them were doctors back in their home country. Some of them, you know, had PhDs already and they couldn't, they were stuck in refugees camps and there was no better place for them to go back to. And like, even just to this day, like Syria is still a mess. And so I then felt like it was incumbent on myself to actually like take the privilege, whatever version of privilege I had, the blue passport in this case, um, you know, and actually apply it to uh, take advantage of it in some way. because. At a minimum, it's disrespectful to other folks who maybe did not come from the same um, version of privilege that I had. And um, it helped to kind of keep me again on that straight and narrow path where I wanted to be like, okay, this is what I want to be contributing my life towards. Did you realize at that time when you when you were in that situation and you know, you're staying in hostels, you're sleeping in the library and things, like, was, was your thought process even at that time um, one that you were reflective of? of them and the, not them, but you know, the, the refugees and their situation that, that was actually a, a thought process of yours. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked, I like, I like would, I started the human rights foundation at my university at that time um, or human rights society rather. Um, and was their like first president. Um, so we would, I would host like um, academics to come in from different parts of the, topic areas. So like the Rohingya Muslims in, in Myanmar and Palestinian um, issue, uh, like international lawyers that focused on the Palestinian issue. Um, folks that were, you know, on Rwandan genocide or female genital mutilation. Like I had people come in and talk about these different topics to a largely um, like kind of, uh, to, to put it nicely, like people that just were disinterested, the student body was pretty much disinterested in these topics when I was trying to, but you know, you get like six or seven people coming in and having these conversations and like, it was cool. But like, and that was when like, this is all happening kind of in my personal life, but at this, like while my personal life was, was kind of financially, at least was not great. And if anything, it gave me purpose. Like it gave me reason um, and not to get like too like mental healthy, but like um, Victor Frankel, he's, he's, he's a, he's a writer that talked about kind of mental health and he talks about like, in this case, man, but man as like in humanity, um, uh, sense for purpose. And it was kind of like love of family, um, you know, love of something like a passion and then the ability to kind of overcome kind of trials and tribulations. And those three things, if people have one version of those three things, um, you know, they'll find kind of like that, that ability to continue on. Cause he was, he was referring more to like the Holocaust, um, but that was kind of the, the 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 crux of his kind of research and stuff. And I, I find that to be like now, having read that book, to be true for myself was that like, you know, I had this passion that I knew I was really interested in. And I also like like wanted to overcome. I didn't want to go like I didn't want to continue to be poor. Like I, I there was a lot that went into that. So I was willing to kind of persevere through all that stuff um, because I just was, you know, I had that drive internally so i was it was a good distraction for me i guess in some ways um doing the human rights stuff for other folks because i was also living it in some lesser version but um it helped contextualize and keep me kind of um focused and in that context you also mentioned you know the people with the louis vuitton and the and the Lamborghinis, all those things are you also 
looking at that, like, oh, I mean, that's beautiful. That's nice. It, it was that was that ever something like, oh, I can as, to aspire to or to or to not to see that's not where happiness. Like, where did that rank in your uh, attention? Yeah, I mean, like, there's definitely an element of like, man, it'd be cool to fly first class, right? Like, 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 or like travel or like be able to spend that kind of money on stuff. And like, I'm obviously I'm living much com- more comfortably now, uh, being well into my professional career, and so like. I'm content financially. Like, I, I don't think I ever really want to, like, I, that's not who I am. Like, I want quality goods because my emphasis on, like, sustainability, um, you know, I want products that are sustainably generated, both from a labor perspective, so not using exploitative labor practices, but also, you know, not exploiting our planet. So that's what's most important to me, which generally does not align with Louis Vuitton, right? Um, I don't, I, I don't think a, you know, Hundreds, hundreds of dollar black shirt is worth anything just because that's LV. That doesn't really mean a lot to me. Not to discredit other folks who find like value in that, but for me personally, that's not really what it was. Um, so I, I think I like the idea of having that those means, but not necessarily using them in the same manner or way that other folks did, I guess. Um, and I think it's always fun to kind of like dabble in that stuff. Like, like maybe it'd be cool to rent a Lamborghini for a day or something, but like, I don't really think it's practical to own one because the economist in me is like, no, that's, that's, that's just that's not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think like my bigger concern was like, there is this associate or like the association and it could just be, you know, my own biases, but like there is a correlation between like kind of their own version of unhappiness and wealth that like, I like it, it seemed a lot of superficial stuff, not surprisingly. And again, this this could very well be my own bias and just interpreting all of their things in this lens. But nonetheless, like I didn't see a lot of happiness in those behind those like those clothings, behind those sunglasses, behind you know whatever it may be. And so, I yeah, for me, like I get I, I generate my happiness being outdoors, hanging out with my family, loved ones, my pet, and so my dog, and so. Um, yeah, and, I, I don't think it really shaped me that much. Well, well, more- it seemed another one of those instances where you know as you, you're in a, you you are self aware and you know what makes you happy or what where you want to go and you're realizing that it's not there. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's nice, yeah, that's, but I'm, that's, yeah, that's, that's a- yeah, yeah. Because I, like, I, in fairness, like because of my background, like my my propensity for math, statistics, and everything, like I I could walk into probably you know a lot of like banking, finance kind of institutions and um, whether it be stocks or whether it be something else and like probably do particularly, probably pretty well. But like, I just don't like, I don't like the idea of that if I'm being honest, like it just, it just is. Uh, and the other piece of this, and this is kind of going back to my childhood, but like my mom bought her first house or was in line to buy her first house when she, like when I was like 18 and this was at like 2007 and uh Sure enough, this was like right before the financial crisis and she started putting money towards this house and um, sure enough, the whole system blew up. And at this time, I didn't know why. Um, I know Obama was running for president. Um, he was a black president, but like that was like a, more or less the extent of my political and economic knowledge that there was a huge financial crisis happening and Obama's running for president. And like, I was embarrassed by that because people would ask me, like older people would ask me about like, these different things. And like, I didn't have an answer. And like, I don't like not having an answer to something like, like something that's, def- even if it's like, like wrong, like at least I should be able to defend it. But I, I was just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and so like, I wanted to better understand how kind of bankers and wall street at the time, cause we had the, a few years later, we had like the occupy wall street and everything. I wanted to understand how like that led to my mom losing her home, her first house that she ever bought. And that was another kind of one of those moments, those pivotal moments in my life where I was like, okay, I want to like spend more time focusing on this topic and we'll figure out kind of everything else from there. So let's, so at this time, right, you're trying to figure out how, how this all pieces together and you have your interests, you have your skills, you have all these things. And at that time, and so maybe it's not specifically at this time, but what was your journey into finding your next step in your professional career? Was it, was it, did that moment lead you into the the next step in your career? Uh, you're talking about like in college? Yeah. So this was in college when this happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This okay. was all my undergrad. So 
as I was exiting undergrad, I was in my fourth year, and I remember like two kind of things that happened. One, my 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 partner at the time, she asked me, "So you're graduating school? Like, what do you want to do?" I was like, "Well, I'm getting a business degree, so I'll probably go into business." And she's like, "What does that mean?" And I'm like, "I, I don't know. I'll go into business." She's like, "You're just going to go into business?" I'm like. Uh, that's right. Ooh, I have no idea what I'm talking about, huh? So that that was like one where I realized I needed a lot more information. And then two, around the same time, like my professor, I, I participated in the Model United Nation. We went to New York from London. Uh, it was like a huge kind of like you know thousands of kids kind of, or like college students kind of coming around from around the world participating in this, and I I loved it. I enjoyed it. And as we were preparing for that for about like almost eight months or so, uh, my teacher you know took me to side. So so what are you doing after? you know, you graduate. And I'm like, I don't, I have no idea. I guess I'll get a job. And she's like, you don't really know what you want to do. I was like, no, she's like, you're going, you're going to go get your master's degree. I'm like, all right, I guess I'm getting my master's degree. Uh, and so at that point, I, 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 it never really occurred to me that I could do that. Right. But I started looking into it and I was like, I'm not going to get into any of these schools, but like, whatever, I'll just give it a, give it a go. And so I knew like London School of Economics was one that I was really interested in. Um, there's a, other, a few others in the, the in London area that are like world renowned um, that focus on economics. I knew I wanted to focus more on that because of like the um, the nexus between kind of economics and human rights and kind of equity. Um, so I knew I wanted to focus on economics in some way because it was linked to human rights, but I didn't know exactly how to do it. So I knew I needed to go to an economic school and ultimately that like, I was like, okay, well, let me apply to um, LSE. Let me apply to NYU, King's College, um, uh, University of California, San Diego, and then a few others um, who were maybe less prestigious um, in the space of economics. And um, I won't disparage their name, so I'm not going to mention them. Uh, Fair enough. those are kind of the four, like my, like, oh, I will never get into these schools, but let me just apply into it. And then like, I got into all of them and was like, I thought it was, I honestly thought it was a prank. Like punked was a thing. And I was like, I didn't tell anybody I was going, like applying to these schools. Cause I was embarrassed when I wouldn't get in and I'd have to explain it. But like, I'm getting these letters from these schools saying I've gotten in and I don't understand why. And then like, I like the realization came that like, I was like, oh, maybe I am like actually good at this stuff. So at that point in time, like I was like, okay, well now I need to pick one. And I end up uh, UC San Diego, like coming from low income background, I always struggled with money. Obviously I was homeless in London for the, the, the thing I talked about here, but I was also struggled in other ways. Um, like, you know, as a kid and everything. And that was part of like the, 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 the story I told to UC San Diego was like, I need, you know, like financially, I just need help. Like, this is where I'm back. This is my background and everything. So I applied to a scholarship and they ended up giving me like a full academic scholarship, um, based academic scholarship. And I remember I got that letter and I was sitting in, I was working as a um, resident advisor. So this was one of the times I was not homeless in London. I was working as a resident advisor for the school. Um, basically helping like study abroad students navigate London and whatnot. And I got like free camping, uh, free campus housing and, and, and food or not free, but like included in my, my work. And so I'm in my little dorm room. One of the first times in my life that I've had my own room and like, I get this letter and I'm reading it and like, I'm like jumping up. Like, I'm like, I'm like Michael Jordan from the free throw line, jumping up in the air, <laughs> just like so excited because for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm stable, like, or like stability is coming, I guess, right? Like, because with this comes, I'm not going to have to move all the time. I'm not going to have to work X amount of jobs while trying to go to school. I can focus just kind of fully on my stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I sing the praises of UC San Diego, like to this day, like I sit on the alumni board. I, I um, my one gripe against them is that they don't have enough, um, they don't do a good enough job right at this point in time of recruiting people of color, black people specifically. Um, but like, aside from that, like they help their professors or some of like my closest mentors and everything to this day. And uh, yeah, I cannot sing their praises any higher, but at this time, like I still was like, wow, like this is not real. And it's one thing, it's, it's interesting thing I found about, about myself. And this is again, that awareness, but like, I'm really good at persevering through, uh, 
and like kind of just keeping like a, a smile on my face, even when I'm not that, that happy. I'm really terrible at like <laughs> getting good news or getting compliments. I get so uncomfortable. And so like, I didn't even want to tell my parents or my family about this. Cause I knew that they were going to like start, you know, talking to me about it, but like, uh, like, like singing my praise and whatever. And I was like, just embarrassed by the fact that I was being successful because I wasn't something I was like, like, I don't know. I just wasn't used to it at this point in time. And so, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of what took me to UC San Diego. Um, and then from there, basically I met some professors, um, who kind of put me onto the climate change space, but I didn't focus really on that, um, while I was at the university, but it was in the back of my mind a lot. And then as I continued to kind of down this like pathway of like focusing on disadvantaged communities, I realized there was the intersection and now it's called environmental justice, but I didn't know that at the time, but like this environmental justice need. So trying to understand kind of the economics as well as, um, you know, socioeconomic uh, inequities that exist within society. And when I started seeing and reading papers on this and topic, like articles um, on this topic, realizing that like, oh shit, this was my life. Like, this is what I went through. And I can probably, you know, make a career out of this in some way, shape or form if I focus. And so that kind of first version of that was like education because like education there's a high correlation between education and your like lifetime earning potential. Right. And so I was like, okay, let me tire on education. Let me work there. And then like, I was, I saw that unemployment rate between for, for African-Americans is the highest with the exception of native Americans and indigenous populations is like some of the highest in the, in the country while I was there. So I was like, okay, let me focus on, let me focus on labor economics. And then, you know, more recently it was the environmental justice piece. And that's like, you know, we're seeing a a dearth of uh, investment within low income communities, specifically black and brown communities. And a lot of that is associated with, you know, like even former red line communities. So in a place like San Diego, um, we see that like, if you just map out like the deployed um, solar or, or like installed electric vehicle charging infrastructure from a, a um, uh, from like public charging infrastructure, you see that like that more or less just misses huge swaths of the population. And those populations were former red line communities, which are, you know, present day, um, you know, still present day black and brown communities. And like, there is a huge risk uh, and not only risk, but like a high likelihood of it occurring that like these communities are not going to receive um, these green technologies that are going to benefit other folks who are in the middle and upper, uh, um, you know, middle class, uh, middle wage earners and whatnot. Um, low income communities are not going to receive these benefits from green technologies because there's not a business case for them. So my research now is trying to understand what the business case is. And so I think I think this is this is a great place to take this conversation because of your all your research, what, what you've seen. uh on the academic side and real life case studies and, and all the work that, that you've done. Is there anything in your mind that's it's called low hanging fruit? Like where, where, where do you address first? Cause this is, this is a big ask. This is a, this is a, a, a big uh, challenge to solve. When you talk about um, climate change and infrastructure and clean energy, all these you know, transportation, like what, what are, in your mind, one or a couple of the things that could be addressed first? So one thing that we, you know, it's been as kind of in the news in California lately is kind of been this idea of reparations um, for specifically for black folks. And though I think like the, the merit of it, you know, like, is it something that is, uh, would be useful? I think, yes. Um, However, it's so convoluted, it's so, you know, political that like the likelihood of it ever occurring is more or less like zero. So like I'm a realist at heart. So like for me, like it's a waste of like political capital to even really have that kind of discussion. I think it's an interesting and it's important in some ways, but like I don't think it's a real realistic thing to occur. However, because there's such a strong correlation between low income communities and black and brown communities, because that correlation exists, if you just invest in low income communities full stop and everyone can get the piece of the pie, regardless of like, you know, in your race, racial background, then you actually end up solving kind of that same problem. 
Um, and yes, there will be some overlap. And yes, there will be people that may not like that would not qualify under the the um, you know reparations uh, version that would qualify under this one. But like for me as a humanist, like I, like I don't care. Like if you're struggling, if you're poor, like generally speaking, like let let's make this not be the case. So hmm. I think um, you know from that perspective. There is a lot, and we're seeing a lot of, like the the uh, investment and in infrastructure jobs act um, from the federal government has made a lot of this stuff kind of available for for like more money um, available for kind of investing in low income communities and these justice forty communities or um, in California it's SB five through five communities. There's a lot of money that's now being made available for that. Um, the IRA Infl- and Inflation Reduction Act uh, similarly is kind of targeting kind of the, the, there's programs and grants that are targeting these communities to make sure that the dissemination of these technologies is actually occurring because policymakers are understanding that this is going. So like the money is coming in. It's really going to be important for private capital to also match that money in the private market, because though it's great, like, like, you know, we're spending billions of dollars, like on these, on these projects that actually doesn't go that far in the context of an entire country that with, you know, 300 million plus people living in it and a good amount of them being low income. Um, it doesn't actually go that far, that amount of money. And really what will need to happen is trying to find an innovative way to make a business case, um, for private companies to come in and, and, um, you know, invest in these communities and, you know, not just invest in the communities, but invest in the people and allow them to also have the opportunity to get like these quality jobs, these jobs that set them on a path that can, you know, bring financial stability and, and help build intergenerational wealth. Um, but, you know, that's a that, like that. <laughs> I recognize there's not something like very specific there yet. Uh, because in fact, like, I don't know that there is really low hanging fruit. Like we, we could Mm. like, like we're talking about again, like in just taking the red line example that that was outlawed in the 1970s. Um, it was a policy from like the 1920s to thirties. Uh, but it's been outlawed for, you know, more than 50 years ish, I think at this point in time. And we're still dealing with those same issues, that are stemming directly from those policies. And so like low hanging fruit, like giving black and brown folks access to capital so that they can invest in their communities and help to start businesses. And like, that's what we need to continue to be doing. Uh, but like doing it in a way that is, you know, like finding a better way to do it that doesn't take into account, like for example, credit scores, which are in their own way biased because they, they track on zip code where you're like all these things that are like, look back at history, but if your history is so connected to your parents' history and your parents' history is so connected to policies that were meant put in place to kind of keep them behind, then all of a sudden, like, there's no way you're going to ever break free from this kind of, kind of poverty trap. Um, Yeah. So I'll, maybe I'll leave it there for a second. Yeah. So I, I just think, like you mentioned, there there may be not low-hanging fruit, but it has to start somewhere. Yeah. And I am hopeful yeah. uh, and, you know, grateful in a lot of ways that the people that, such, such as yourself, that, that have, can see it from multiple different vantage points and angles and can think through this and take the tangible steps to move, at least move forward because without yeah. any intention and, and moving things forward in a thoughtful way, then of course nothing's going to happen. But yeah. you know, like you mentioned creating a business case yeah. and those, those private public partnerships and people understanding that, you know, you need to do a before you do B to do C and putting these things in C in their, in their proper sequence to get them past the finish line and, you know, and, and to actually see the data behind it. And that's one of the things I'm really excited about seeing all the work that you're doing and, and how you've done it, because if you don't have the data, then you can't create the business case and then you can't get the investment to even move it forward. So I think everything that you've, you've been doing and from what I've seen so far is really, is really helping. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And there's still a lot of work, obviously, to be done in this space. And I, I guess, like, the lowest of hanging fruit, right, would be, like, 
again, this is kind of going into the, uh, maybe the crux of my research, but like energy poverty, right? So the idea behind energy poverty is if you spend in the US, it's like 6% of your, your household income on servicing energy bills, you're likely to be in a situation to be experiencing kind of affordability challenges, uh, specifically energy poverty. And that has like real implications on your data. Like, should I eat? Can I afford to shop at this grocery store versus this one? Should I have to provide my kids with, um, you know, heating or cooling in the, the, the summertime? Or do we have to go without? Like, is the internet going to be good for us for when we're trying to do remote schooling or not? Or not? Because of all the like related to kind of this energy, um, energy poverty. And so, you know, one thing that we in like my research is focusing on is kind of building retrofit. So again, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but like buildings, um, there, there's a dearth of, of investment within these communities for um, within the building space. Um, you know, there is a correlation between buildings performance, uh, their building envelope performance and how much energy is being con- consumed per person per square foot. And I think what happens with this is if you are kind of a low-income person, you are more likely to live in a household that is um, energy inefficient. And because you're more likely to have an energy inefficient home, you have to pay more to get uh, the same amount of energy, whether it be comfort in the home or whether like like, like keeping heat in or keeping cold out um, or vice versa, depending on the time of year. Um as well as you know any any other um, thing related to the building envelope, and so that's a huge problem because um, if you are already kind of a low income earner and, and you're struggling with affordability challenges, and then you have to also on top of that have a building that's m- more inefficient, which costs you more money, um, you're kind of being this double penalty. You're paying this double penalty, right? And because there's a lack of investment um, in kind of building retrofits for low income uh low income households and like you can see it again like like even things away from the retrofit side but like um you know battery storage and solar and and electric vehicle charging infrastructure for the home like all those things are missing these communities already but before we even get to that point like we need to make sure that the building envelope is nice and tight um that the building performance is quite high and then you really should be electrifying everything Right. And so like then once you electrify everything, then you can kind of start thinking about like solar, um, uh, solar battery storage, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And because these communities are kind of missing the uh, like our investment is kind of missing these communities, they're going to have to be they're going to be consuming more energy in the long term. And I think why that gets important is because this is kind of getting more into like economies of scale and whatnot. But like for a utility, like they have these like long-term fixed costs that they have to pay off. And so if we consume less and less energy as a society, they have to charge more and more per unit of energy that they're selling, regardless of, um, because they have to like basically balance their books. And that means folks who are kind of consuming energy at a higher rate than they should be are getting like, you know, now triply penalized because they was, you know, they had their low income and then their buildings are inefficient. And then now they're being charged more per unit of energy they're being consumed. And so if we are looking for ways, and again, like I I don't want to classify this as a low hanging fruit, but it's a really important step is like building retrofits, right? Like making sure that we update the building stock that we have today, whether it be in San Diego, whether it be other parts of the country, updating the building stock to make sure that these, you know, the, that, you have, um, you know, um, you know, windows that aren't leaking and insulation is good and the roofs aren't leaking and that then you can, you know, decrease the amount of energy that's being consumed and whatnot. And so I think that's, those are kind of like the, the important step that we have to take as a society. Um, and I think that ha- offers a huge opportunity for businesses because, um, there's a lot of homes that, are basically needing to be retrofitted. You know, I think one one statistic that I saw is, you know, 80% of homes that exist today or uh, that will exist in 2050 are existing today. And, you know, that means for them to be, to live, for us to live in a net zero world, we have to do, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. And this is construction and construction jobs and, and also like uh, plays a role for construction organizations. This is also like 
electricians and 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 um, you know then solar installers and all 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 of the jobs in between those on those kind of blue collar trials. But it's also like the finance side. It's also on like how do we kind of package these um, package these these investments in a way that would actually uh, make a business case a lot stronger. And that piece of it is you know still very very complicated. Um, but you know I think. But it's, yeah. ne- it's necessary and it's, yeah. and it's yeah. coming. Yeah. 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 So lots to do there. Uh, I mean, I can obviously talk for uh, a, a long, long period of time on all this stuff, but um, there is well, still. This is, yeah, yeah, this is this is the first of, of many conversations that we're going to be having on this topic because, you know, this, I know for me personally, it's near and dear to my heart. It's, it's where, you know, all, all these things are converging similar to yours, kind of a, a, a similar but separate track. You know, I didn't come in this the the academic mm. um, from the am- academic side of things, but um, I see its importance. I see its value. I see how the technology and it can can be related to this, and how it can contribute, and the finance piece, and, and it's it's all it's all coming together. It's all necessary, and it you know it's it's yeah. happening. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's here, it's now and it's needed. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm excited, like, uh, you know, because there's so much changes happening all around us, I think this will be a dynamic industry. It's one of the ones that we, um, as a society need to figure out the building space specifically, because not just from a mission standpoint, like it, it actually is, you know, associated with a huge chunk, probably, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40% of, of our, our missions is like kind of, um, linked to the building space. And so if we have the opportunity to kind of decarbonize that space, but also do it in a way that is equitable. So I, I like to think of it as the green, um, the equitable green transition. So doing it in a way that actually is going to benefit and uplift specific communities that have been historically ignored, then we're in a position where like, okay, we're using this transition, this green transition as an opportunity to make society a lot more equitable. And, um, you know, give opportunities to folks who have historically been kind of, um, you know, in many cases all too often left behind. Yeah. Jamal, thank you so much for sharing your story, your, your journey and your insights on all this. I'm going to include your information in the show notes, but in the meantime, is there, is there anything that, that you want to share before we sign off or how to contact you or any other specific items? Yeah. I mean, like I, this is kind of just going back to, um, like my, uh, my lack of, for example, black mentors and whatnot, when I was growing up, um, any, anyone that's looking to connect on that stuff, like please reach out and, and, and on LinkedIn, um, I, I do make an opportunity or, um, a concerted effort to go to speak at universities, to to provide guidance to young folks who are looking and and you don't need to be black around just anyone looking for any kind of guidance on how to get into this space. Um, the topics that are, um, you know, are are trending or how to, um, you know, skill sets. I think I'm happy to kind of have conversations all around that professionally. Um, like I said, I've consulted on, on loads of things, everything from, um, uh, green buildings and, and the greening of transportation to like actually, um, you know, setting net zero targets for cities, companies, countries even. And so um, if you have any questions, I'm pretty easy to find LinkedIn, Jamal Russell Black, um, reach out there is probably the easiest way. And then we can, um, you know, correspond and go from there. I want to thank you again for your time and really excited to, to continue to follow you and, and work with you in any way possible. Cause this, uh, this exciting stuff and, and, I'm super impressed with everything that you've done so far. So thank you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Uh, I, I'm I'm so glad we had the chance to connect today and to have this conversation. And I'm looking forward to kind of having future conversations and partnership with anyone that's passionate about this space. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tools, Talents, and Techniques podcast. We hope you found the conversation insightful and engaging. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your network. By subscribing, you'll never miss an episode as we continue to bring you inspiring discussions with industry leaders and pioneers. Stay connected to the latest insights, trends, and strategies across various fields from business and entrepreneurship to technology and innovation. Your support is vital in helping us reach more listeners and expand our community. 
So don't forget to leave a review and share your feedback. We appreciate your input and are committed to delivering valuable content that empowers and inspires. To stay updated on future episodes, be sure to follow us on either LinkedIn or our website, suttonrea.com. You can also find us on most podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. Thank you for being part of the Tools, Talents, and Techniques community. We look forward to bringing you more engaging conversations and valuable insights in the future. Until then, keep exploring, learning, and applying these tools, talents, and techniques to achieve your own success.